Welcome to the Education Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Here in our PCRF Journal Club, we promote evidence-based practices by critically evaluating the latest science in emergency medical services. We hope our discussion will help advance EMS practice. Through the generous support of our sponsor, Limmer Education, we can make science more accessible and understandable. Okay, hi everybody and welcome and thanks to the people in the room too. Um, welcome to the special edition of the Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Education Research Journal Club. We are live from Louisville, Kentucky for the second year in a row now. We're at a credit con. So we've got a little mix thing going on. What do they call this? High flex now in education, right? We got the people alive. The only thing we need is the owl. We don't have that. Um, so we have got a special treat for you today. We are live from Louisville. And a big thank you first to Limmer Education for helping us uh, sponsor these podcasts so we can bring you the best science in medical education. I'm Megan Corey, and I'm here with Dr. Kim McKenna over here, which on the camera you can see. And I'm here with Dr. Michael Miller, who is the Assistant Director of the COA EMSP. And we are going to be ambitious today. We're going to discuss two articles, not just one, but two. And we're going to do it in a, you know, less than an hour-ish, maybe. Uh, we'll see. Uh, the first article is one that I think will be uh, near and dear to everyone's heart and a lot of discussion here at the conference so far. We've had two actually great keynote. We had a keynote speaker this morning, uh, Greg Margolis, who raised this issue. Uh, we had one uh, speakers just a few minutes ago uh, on higher education and accreditation. Uh, and it relates to both of these articles. First one is paramedic education program attrition accounts for significant loss of the potential EMS workforce. This is an open access article uh, that is in JSEP open, so you can yank that right off the internet. Uh, one of our uh, co-authors here is Michael Miller. Come on in, come on in, this is Cash. Um, and we've got a second article here too called The Role of Accreditation in 21st Century Health Professions Education. This is a report of an international consensus group. So we're kind of zooming in first, then we're coming back out globally after that. First, before we do that, we want to remind you that if you miss any of these, you can subscribe or even just pop in to our YouTube channel. That is youtube.com forward slash at P. CRF at UCLA, and you can listen to any of our uh, webinars on, on journal clubs, the clinical, and the educational. The other quick announcement before we get started is that June 30th, you have 28 days now to submit an abstract. Maybe you've got some data from your research over here. We were talking about your research. Um, or maybe you're you know in the classroom, you're measuring all kinds of data. You're an accredited program. Maybe there's something that's piqued your interest and you'd like to get it out there and present it at a conference. Well, there's an abstract opportunity in 28 days to submit. You can go to prehospitalcare.org and find out more information. All right. So now let's uh, get started here. And I know we have a chat and a Q&A, but you know what? I We don't have the whole lot of mechanism here. If anybody um, has access to a chat, the chat to actually, you know, pop in and, and uh, view those 
those questions or anything, um, then maybe we can pull those in in another way. Uh, but uh, I'd have to leave the screen and I'm afraid of losing all of you here. So it's a little bit of a, a tech challenge here to do that. So um, sorry for you folks that are that might be popping into the chat. So let's look at this first study. This is, um, you know, I, I don't think we have to go too much into the background and significance of uh, uh, workforce issues, but, uh, you know, Mike, you were one of the co-authors on this, and this was a study that came out of data. This is a cross-sectional evaluation of U.S. paramedic educational programs with enrolled students in the 2019 uh, Committee on Accreditation um, of EMS Programs annual report surveys. And tell us uh, actually a little bit about these annual report surveys for maybe people who don't know. This room, everybody probably knows. Yeah, maybe great. Thing. Thanks, Megan. And, and thanks to Limer Education and PCRF. It's a pleasure to be with you and to have this for the second year in a, in a row at, at Accreditcon to be able to look at some research. Um, so you, you mentioned the workforce and, and of course, workforce challenges exist in our profession in EMS. We have significant issues with um, just about every geographical location in the country needing more EMS personnel, including paramedics. So looking at the retention or, or attrition, um, different sides of the same coin, really, uh, it's important to try to look at that and maximize wherever we can retention of people that have a desire and interest in enrolling in paramedic education to actually be able to complete that. And then ultimately, um, though not directly something that, that COE is looking at, but this project was done in collaboration with the National Registry, also looking at the losses that happen when somebody can't pass the certification examination. So that was really the focus of this particular paper. As far as the, the annual report goes, we're, we're always a couple of years behind. Um, so that's why this paper was, was just relatively recently published uh, earlier this year. And it's looking backwards or retrospectively at 2019 data um, that programs submit in an annual report. So every year, programs are, are asked to um, submit an annual report. There are three big aspects to that report that include the program recording in a, in a report that ultimately gets submitted to us, the total number of students that they enrolled, how many of those students graduated, which ultimately leads to us being able to calculate or figure out what their overall retention or attrition was from the program in that particular year. We do, do also ask them to um, categorize best they can with the information that they have why the students are leaving. There are two big broad categories to that. Those that are being um, are, are being lost from the program for academically based reasons. They didn't pass a test that was a high stakes exam, those kinds of things, or circumstances or situations that were a result of the student making a decision that maybe financially they could no longer continue to do it. So think about circumstances that would be outside the control of the educational um, program itself. Um, overall, what this paper identified is that there are about 20% or so, um, which actually, even if you go beyond this particular reporting year, I, I can tell you in, in looking at some other data, that's pretty typical um, for what we see as a profession from paramedic education programs year over year. Um, I have four years of data and it's right around that 20% threshold fairly consistently. The other aspects of that report also look at performance on the national issue examination. So we have some of that information, which of course is part of this um, process because we wanted to know for those that 
present to, to the National Registry, for example, for a certification examination, and it could be a state exam as well in, in our reporting system that looks at how many people ultimately pass that examination and get certified. So the third component that is not part of this particular project also looks at positive placement, um, but those are the three big outcomes that we look at and are required to assess uh, largely because of, of um, outcome performance that the Department of Education and other accreditors want to look at. So KHIP is the accreditor, COA EMSP um, operationalizes that accreditation process for paramedic education programs. And so they delegate that responsibility to us to do these reports, collect them every year. Uh, and then programs are also required to publish these outcomes so that prospective students and families can assess whether or not they're making a wise choice or wise decision for where they're going to um, receive their education. Yeah, that's great. So last year, we talked a little bit about the issue. If you remember, we did we looked at an article on educational characteristics. So again, using this large data set now that we have this opportunity, right, to, to look at this. And Kim McKenna is here. And Kim, you've worked with the National Registry data set too. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of um, sort of walk me through how you think these two marry together? We see a lot of this research, and maybe both you guys can, about, you know, how these two groups can, because you said it, Mike, when you have people, there's a lot of things that can affect attrition um, from the profession, from the program. You know, if you start from, from paramedics working in the field sure. and you work your way backwards to before they ever even came into EMT, there are all these little spots along the way that can affect it. Yeah. I think in higher education, there's been some research about you know, gateways into a profession. Yeah. And especially in nursing, they look at, for example, anatomy and physiology as being one thing that could stop people from coming into the profession. Or, you know, it's a it's one of those sort of gates that might stop from somebody from coming into the profession. And so you could look at attrition and then performance on certification exams as sort of other gateways that may or may not allow somebody to come into the profession. And there was a lot of belief that, that, uh, you know, accreditation and, mm. and the exam were a big um, part of it. And I think people didn't really understand that attrition was such a big piece of lost workforce. I think that's one reason this paper is like so important. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, so let's dig into the paper a little bit, um, and and I think the the first thing I'm going to show is actually some results. But uh, so let's just look at the method to again cross sectional analysis of 2019 COA uh, annual report survey. So you describe these are um, submitted, you know, two years later. This is data from 2019, so this is pre pandemic stuff. But also the definition of retention it was was it a little bit different then. Uh, than it is now, or yeah. a little bit more clarified now. Yeah, great, great point, Megan, to, to bring that up. So it's important to note that in the this particular data set, programs themselves determined the whole definition around retention and attrition. So it was whenever the, the program determined that the student counted toward that particular outcome or didn't count. We have since taken some steps, the, the board of directors for COA-MSP wanted to level the playing field so that we could compare apples to apples instead of apples to oranges, um, same ultimate intent there. But now we've provided programs with a definition that once a student that is enrolled completes 10% of the entirety of the educational program, 
however they're measuring that, once they get to 10%, so let's just say it's a thousand hour paramedic program, because I can do that math easily in my head. Yeah. <laughs> if if they get to 10% of the program or a hundred hours in any aspect of it, so classroom didactic kinds of things, if they're starting clinicals early in their programming, anything that would get that student to 100 hours of their educational program, the board and the, the group that worked on this definition felt that that was sufficient time for a student to make an informed decision if they felt they were in the right educational program for them. Um, so that's kind of leveled the playing field. We have not yet been, been able to really look at the data from a post-2019 when that definition actually went into place. So that is definitely a limitation in this particular data set. Sure. And that um, that date actually kind of coincides with a lot of census dates for colleges, I noticed, which was kind of convenient for, for some of us. All right. So looking at this then... Um, you, we were looking at different factors that are associated also with with your with the uh, retention and attrition rates for these. Uh, it, oh, I love actually this is one thing I love about the annual report data is the hundred percent response rate because it's a mandatory piece of data uh, of information that you have to turn in uh, each year. Even though it's not, we know it's not perfect. I'm a program director. I do annual reports. I have to call Mike sometimes, and I've been doing this for twenty years, and say, "Hey, Mike, how do I handle these?" you know, cohorts that cross over and when they're not really, you know, attrition, they're actually still in the program, but they cross over the on-time graduation date. We we know that there's limitations to this, but this is still, uh, you know, I think it's really uh, meaningful data. So you wanted to look at it and compare things like regional variation, um, cohort size, other things that we've talked about before that might affect, you know, um, attrition uh, on in a program. So overall, you had, I, I do have a question about this too. We had 690 programs um, and it, that submitted data in 2019, but 640 were included in the analysis. And we see 50 programs were excluded because they had no enrolled student I, students. I put a little comment that that's a story in itself right here. <laughs> so I, um, what was that about, do you think? No yeah. enrolled students. I don't know that we know for sure. There, yeah. there are some programs um, that will not specifically graduate a student. So oh, sure. when when the report is completed, they're reporting out on students based on completion dates, mm -hmm. not yeah. enrollment dates. So when they complete that 2019 report, it's for every single student or cohort of students that completed their education in 2019. Yeah. If they fall out of that parameter, then they end up in another reporting year. Uh, and, and so they wouldn't be reflected here. In some cases, there are some programs that will not allow them to complete because of the way that their curriculum maps and their degree plans are set up until they complete all of the program requirements, including requirements for the degree. Other programs, as soon as they have completed their core paramedic education, then they will give them a certificate of completion. They're eligible to take the examination. So it's just a matter of how some programs specifically do that. And some programs will span more than two years of time. So that's why they may have not had okay. actual graduates to report in that year. Yeah. Other cases, sometimes programs will only offer the program every other year because that's what their local community needs by way of offering the educational program. Wow, that's true. Is that what you're going to say, Kim? It sounds no, like no. you I was familiar just going to say that. that that one of the I am familiar with that, but one of the strengths of this study, I think, is I mean, think about it, 640 programs. There are very few states that uh, don't use the national registry. So this is, if you talk about research and is it generalizable, 
Mm. You know, this is one of the real strengths of this is it encompasses really the lion's share of all the paramedic programs in this country. Yeah. And, and so you wouldn't expect the data to be much different in those few states that don't use the National Registry for entry. So yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. So the first table then is the first table of results shows us some statistics um, with the uh, 640 programs, 17,000 um, plus students in the programs and a student students enrolled uh, per cohort. Um, the median here is, and the interquartile range is shown here too. The median is 18. So you got a kind of a, a you know interquartile range of 12 to 30. Um, and then you've got your outliers, of course, out, outside of that. But that's about the median. And then uh, graduates, um, cohorts by graduated cohorts by program, uh, one cohort a year uh, is 60%. That's the majority. Um, and then a few, 20, about a quarter have two cohorts a year, and then about 8% each, three cohorts. And wow, 8% greater than or equal to four cohorts. Wow, that's busy. That's ambitious. <laughs> <laughs> Overlapping cohorts. Yeah, and Megan, I would just add one of the things that um, I've looked at uh, in looking at some of our data. Interestingly enough, 56% of our programs uh, have enrollments of 20 students or less per year. Yeah. So more than half of the programs out there are, are relatively small. Yeah, that's important to think about when we start evaluating or when programs evaluate the resources as well. Um, but uh, th and then there's a, the next part was the Nisemso region. We looked at this last year, uh, educational program distribution um, by geography, and we see the South having 40% uh, of the paramedic programs and then, uh, you know, 20% in the Great Lakes, 17 in the East, um, and then Western Plains and West each having 11% of the programs. Uh, the next figure made me think of you, Kim, uh, because this is the certification. Um, and, and Kim is on uh, the board of the National Registry. So um, this is the impact of program attrition and certification completion on, on the available certified paramedics. So attrition accounts for 21% of potentially available certified paramedics. What did you make of this? And I mean, what, sometimes research is like opening up a present, you know, you kind of put the data in, you kind of go, wow, you know, this is what came out. And sometimes it's what you expect and say, oh, another sweater. <laughs> sometimes it's like, whoa. Yeah, so interesting. Um, you know, the the project identified, interestingly, that there, there were, um, and I know that this is coming up, so I don't mean to jump ahead and, and you'll show the histogram, I, I think, here yeah. in a bit, Megan, but there are a number of programs that have zero attrition. They retain every single student that walks in the door. Um, so again, we, we don't have a specific idea about why those programs have zero attrition and others have some significant attrition. But overall, I will say that the trend is right around that 20% range uh, across the board when we look at all the programs in, in aggregate. It Interestingly enough, we also did look at some other professions from a comparison perspective mm -hmm. to look at benchmarking. We're oftentimes compared to nursing as a profession. And another group that we looked at were respiratory therapists yeah. as well. Um, we noted in the paper, having looked at their um, information that they publish on retention, and they're not all that dissimilar. They're all right around that 20% range. 
So, uh, you know, the threshold that we uh, expect programs to, to hit that we're looking for over a three-year span is to have a retention rate of at least 70% overall when we look at a three-year snapshot in time. We understand that some years might be a little bit lower and some years might be a little bit higher. That was evidenced by what we uh, are starting to see and will start to see in some of the preliminary information from the COVID um, pandemic situation and what that did as far as influencing retention of, of students in, in their paramedic education programs. Yeah, great discussion section in here. And that was on that those statistics too. They included, you know, we did look at other uh, respiratory therapy around 18% in 2020, 20% attrition in nursing in 2019. And they're, interestingly, their thresholds are set for these are at 70% as well in their accreditation standards. So I, I think that's an interesting thing, but it's also, um, I think the 11% not certified probably is a little bit um, more uh, surprising to me is that you go all the way through this and 11% after, I think it was three attempts. We didn't go through the cumulative right. six, right? But the the success after three attempts is very, very low. Yeah. Um, so it's probably not going to change the overall numbers too much, but I wonder if some of that ties back to, I'd like to know if there's a correlation between schools that have 100% retention and pass rates, because for some, I think especially when I was a new educator, you hated to lose anybody from your program early. And um, you know maybe in the beginning, I didn't have the resources to be able to help coach people through. And so I'm always a little bit curious when somebody has 100% retention, it's sometimes easier to carry people all the way through than to fail them early, you know, or counsel them that maybe they're not ready. Um, and so I'd love to know if there's a yeah. th that correlation there or not. You know, the, I think you bring up something that's really important too, because as educators, as people, as paramedics, as just people in the industry, we have a tendency to want to say, I know what it's about. I know that that's retention, that 100% retention is because it's workforce-based. Those are all people that are training their own people. We're out there, and I know you're out there thinking that. You know, oh, it's all it's all those programs that train their own people, and of course, they're going to retain them. That's what it is. And then we talk about this. Well, wait a minute, maybe retention, you know, and I think that's why it was so important to level that field and make that definition so that we didn't say, uh, you know, as I would say, there's many unethical ways to to. Uh, to retain people, and that's to attrit out people that you think won't make it, right? Right. Uh, which is an equity issue. So there's all kinds of you know ways to mm -hmm. to to look at this. So there's there's many ways that could many things that could explain that, uh, and we won't know it until we measure it. So right. I think that's the real key. Yeah, and one other thing that that's uh, of note that's not specifically reported in this paper that we have since um, looked at briefly is that about four percent of students that graduate from their paramedic education program that are eligible to take the A-in examination, whether or not it's a national registry examination or a state level examination, don't take the test. Mm -hmm. Not at all. They don't yeah. even exercise a single attempt at the examination. So when you look at that, you know, 4% of, uh, I don't know, 15, 16,000 people that are completing paramedic education, why is that? Yeah. We do know that there are programs that, that are out there 
that do prepare students to go on to other kinds of career paths and, and other things. So is there somebody that's taking their paramedic education program at a university that has a baccalaureate program as a pre-med track? And do they matriculate right away into medical school and don't see value in actually taking the examination, becoming certified because they're not going to have the time to necessarily go work while they're a med student for four yeah. years. Um, but they gained invaluable patient care experiences as part of their education they're going to carry with them when they go into medical school or a PA program or other uh, potential career endeavors. Yeah. We especially see that in EMT. Yeah. Right. I wonder how many, I know it's really prevalent at EMT. I wonder how many paramedics take the exam once and never take it again. Yeah, sure. And give up. Yeah, yeah. And give up yeah. after that. Because you, you did something on I did, EMTs. Well, I did EMTs for my dissertation. Yeah. Because there are a substantial number of EMTs that take the exam one time, fail it, and never try again. And yeah, yeah it, it's just yeah, interesting and I think to think about. Like, is that, you know, I'm sure the numbers are there. We just, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So now digging them. deeper, what are the factors associated with that? Yeah, in a number of ways, quantitative, qualitative, <laughs> all kinds of research out there. So table two then shows the program educational details and testing outcomes. So you can see that um, if you pull this again, open open access, I strongly recommend pouring through this, um, which shows the total hours of instruction, months to completion. So this is the timeline um, issue. And and these are descriptive statistics, just, just showing the you know, characteristics. And then meeting the 80% um, resource uh, minimum, which I, I was actually 76% uh, meet their RAM minimum. And I, I wasn't sure whether or not to think that was high or low um, because, you know, that I just, I don't know. I thought, I thought that was actually, I thought more people would actually report that they met the minimum of 80%, um, even though we, we can, you know, tease apart that, that RAM a little more. And I think, um, Dr. Panchel did that in one of his presentations to NAEMSP, uh, you know, teasing out a little bit more data there. Yeah. I would just comment here, Megan, we, we do have a, um, manuscript that is in development yeah. that specifically looks at the resource assessment matrix and the resource assessment survey process that is a requirement per the accreditation standards from KHEP that programs have to assess their resources. There are 10 broad um, categories that they are expected to look at and evaluate on an annual basis, at least once a year. And we have a manuscript that is going to look at that. Um, I'll put a little teaser out there and let you know that one of the areas, um, interestingly enough, that, that was identified as medical director involvement or engagement yes. in paramedic education, which is probably not going to come to a surprise to most program directors. It is a um, common theme that, that that is sometimes lacking in the paramedic education program. Yeah. And some highlights from table two, I think, are that you, you can see a median total hours of instruction for paramedic programs are 1175 uh, total months, uh, about a year. So 12 months is the median. Um, and then numbers of full-time faculty, 35% of one or less, uh, about 30% have two. And then you've got 35% that have um, more than three, three or more. Um, and we met, went through the, and the exam pass rate. So Kim, what did you think of this one? So the exam pass rate here, first attempt is 75% median uh, pass rate. Has that been kind of your experience just looking at yeah, well, it's so variable from state to state. Like if you look, if you can pull up on the National Registry website, the pass rates by state, uh, and it it's astonishing to me how different they are. 
Um, and so again, that's something that you know probably needs to be dug into more. So 75%, uh, I'm not that surprised by that, to be honest with you. Yeah. And, and the cumulative third was 93%. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah. And and we've historically seen Kim, I know um in monitoring pass rates and things across the Nesemso regions and, and geographically, mm -hmm. and there's a map that's coming up in this paper as well. We have seen that there is geographical variation in outcomes, whether or not it's the examination, retention, yes. those kinds of things. Um, there, there is some geographical um, differences there, and it's something to look at yeah. more more uh, formally uh, in in a deeper way in order to try to understand why that is. Yeah. And so many questions. I know there are. <laughs> now we've got uh, this histogram that uh, you had mentioned earlier uh, and the map and that this essentially shows the regional variability and the median attrition rate for paramedic education programs. So what did you take of this when you were looking at, uh, take out of this, looking at the um, regional variations? Well, I, I do think that it is interesting when you look, you know, what is the Western United States doing um, if you look at the map as yeah. far as having um, really, really solid performance with 15.6% with as it pertains to their overall re retention or attrition rate. Actually, it's the, it's the attrition that's being reported here. And then when you go to the southern region, which actually geographically and from a population perspective is probably significantly larger. When you start to look at mm -hmm. the states that comprise that region, I don't know that we're comparing population centers um, from across those regions all, all that fairly. I think there's a heck of a lot more paramedic programs Definitely, yeah. in the southern yeah. Nesemso region as compared to the western region. Um, but beyond that, I don't know that we can say much more. We we don't really understand why it's 15.6% attrition mm -hmm. in, in the West and is the highest in this particular case, 23.1% in the Southern region for NISM. So. I wonder if, uh, I know some of the, the, the states on the West Coast have a mandatory um, degree requirement, Oregon, Oregon for, for example, and, uh, you know, our could that account for some of it? I don't know, you know, are they, some of the students perhaps better prepared when they enter the program? They're kind of in it for the long run. Uh, you know, I don't know. Or does employment have to do with it? Oh, and, good. and you know, uh, are they able to, you know, because of outside concerns of employment or whatever yeah. have to have to we don't really know we're just guessing by the way this is none of us have the answer and one other thing that that struck us when we looked at these results as well to share is that when you look at the histogram to see the number of programs there at the left hand side that have 100% retention it's not an insignificant number of programs that fell into that category why what separates them out from the programs that aren't doing as well I will let you know that the annual report, that reporting period that just concluded, we asked programs, we wanted to take a deeper dive and try to better understand this. Yeah. So we created a list of potential things that programs may be offering by way of characteristics or services to support mm -hmm. their students. Do they have a tutoring program? Do they pay, for example, in academy style programs that might be happening at a fire department where it's free for those people to go yeah. to the paramedic program or if the program has a luxury of being able to provide daycare services to their students yeah. we don't know what all those variables yeah. are but we try to compile a list that was going to be easy for programs to look at that they could go through and check off 
whether or not those characteristics are being provided as part of their educational program. So we're trying to take a deeper dive to better understand what those characteristics consist of as far as what, why some programs mm -hmm. have higher retention as opposed to others. Is it because they have prerequisite coursework as opposed to being open enrollment? Mm -hmm. Those are the kinds of questions that we're trying to ask to better understand the situation. Yeah, I think that's great. And if anyone is interested in doing that too, I would say there's a lot of higher education literature on this. So don't reinvent the wheel in terms of what are factors associated with attrition and retention mm -hmm. in paramedic school. That's got to be so different than every other higher education institution, they may be the same. So uh, looking from that lens is, uh, could be helpful. So then they looked at, uh, now we're looking at the associations, the univariate and multivariate associations. I'm not a statistician. We don't have Bramley. We don't have Tony. <laughs> Maybe anybody out there. But we can tell you that what they came up with, <laughs> can't tell you about how to run them, but um, what, what uh, came out of this uh, was the uh, actually, Mike, let's go through this. So we have the the total time to completion, right? It was a statistically significant finding. Yeah. So, so you guys, when when programs um, go beyond twelve months, what, what we discovered if the program is too long, uh, in essence, and it seems to me that that would be counterintuitive. You would think that the longer the program, the more time to digest the material, mm -hmm. all those other kinds of things that that they would potentially have higher retention rates. But the opposite was true, that if it's 12 months or less, they have higher overall retention rates than programs that extend beyond 12 months. And there are several that go 16, 18, maybe 24 months in duration. We don't have a specific reason that we can point to as it pertains to that, but it could just be a factor of somebody getting worn down, you know, have they um, not been able to get, get across the finish line that wears on them and they lose interest and they go away. Um, so I don't know if that's, that's what the reason yeah. is, but. Um, and this is an association about. too. So we don't know that that one causes the other. So that's the other thing is it's not causal. Yeah. We don't know that being in a program longer is going to cause you to be more likely to attrit. We just know they were associated in this data set that, um, you know, we saw that more in the, in the group that had the characteristic of greater than 12 months had a higher odds ratio um, of, of uh, having that greater than, what was it? Greater than. 30%? Correct. Attrition. Yeah. Yep. Greater than 30%. And <laughs> word it right. Um, and then the other thing was the number, uh, was it number of students mm -hmm. enrolled? Yeah. The, the lower the number of students the enrolled. Smaller cohort size. Yeah. yeah. Smaller cohort. So we don't know if, the, now these are independent. We don't know if they're related. So it isn't like if you have all of these that you're more likely to, these are independent. Um, and then uh, the other was Nesemso region. So we have a wide range of confidence intervals in that. That's the only thing I could say is you had a big wide range of confidence intervals. So, but it's still, you know, way up at the seven and a half. Right. And the total students enrolled is also when small classes have also been associated with less likelihood of passing the national registry exam. Oh, that research has been done, I think, twice now, and it stays pretty steady. And yeah. And so I guess, classes. yeah, in table four, we do get the multivariate associated. Those. Yeah. That's when you take into account uh, these things, right. all those variables. Yep. And even when you do, so when you do take into account, you get this, the same, uh, the mm -hmm. results that greater than 12 months, more likely uh, to have a, um, the attrition rate that's um, greater than 30%. And the same with lower class size or lower number of students enrolled. And then um, the Nesemso region. So uh, Nesemso region, meaning the uh, South and uh, the east. 
And then this was the appendix. I, I actually, in articles, sometimes they'll say, we have additional materials. And sometimes it's not so easy to get to them. This one was really easy. You clicked on it and it took you right to it. So I really appreciated that. Um, but this actually, appendix one, shows you the contributions of academic and non-academic reasons for attrition, which is a lot of times what we're interested in. What was that like? So this is 3,500 plus students. And they give you the breakdown by frequency of the academic and non-academic attrition. And so I was actually surprised at the high number of academic attrition. So this is, you know, I think it's close to 3,000 or so, or close to 20, what is that, 2,700 or so um, in the academic hmm. alone and and lower than that in the I thought and and talking amongst each other we would always say oh life happens that's why they attrit you know mm -hmm. financial medical or personal and then unknown are the three non academic here and that accounts for like 1600 or so uh, you can, you know, essentially make that higher uh, when you look in the academic attrition. I was, I was sort of surprised at that. Yeah, it's a, it's really about a 50-50 or a 45-55 split. And, and I'll tell you, having looked at this for a presentation later here at a credit con, it's pretty consistent yeah. um, across the board as far as far as which category, academic or non-academic reasons, students are falling into as far as them leaving or attriting out of a program. Yeah. But if you have open enrollment, you know, and students aren't prepared to come in, they think it's going to be the same maybe as EMT was, that could account for some of that. I mean, I, I think that, you know, because you're going to, people get to that first major exam at paramedic and they're like, dang, this is a lot harder. Yeah. And, you know, it's a lot more work than it was when I went to EMT school. And um, particularly if you haven't been able to screen to kind of see their preparation for it or, you know, tell them, okay, you need to go and take this kind of a prep class first, that could account for some of that. Yeah. Yeah. That was a really great study. I want to congratulate you guys on doing this. And uh, what, what should come out of it? What do you think uh, some of the next steps are for this? Well, as I mentioned, Megan, we we are taking a deeper dive in in looking at uh, the whole concept of retention and attrition and what characteristics may potentially be able to be identified that allows programs to have higher retention rates uh, over others. And so we're excited to try to get into that data and uh, crunch it and, and share that information with folks. We have no idea what, what it's going to show us. Haven't seen the data at this point. It's been submitted in this most recent annual report as of uh, the, the middle of May this year. So uh, we'll work with our colleagues at the National Registry to take a look at that and see if we can um, identify some things that we can come back to the broader paramedic education community with and say, that these are things that we've identified that may improve the yeah. opportunity for you to retain more students. I would say individual programs too could disaggregate their data. You can start looking yourself, disaggregated outcome data about um, you know attrition, retention, completion, all of these things. And I think that discussion mentions uh, it's just great. You know, talks about uh, other things that could could influence retention and attrition, like academic advising, social connectedness, a sense of belonging uh, is a big deal. I know that's in the higher education literature, mm -hmm. student involvement, faculty and staff approachability, you know, learning experiences, student support services, which, you know, they talked about at length in this last presentation. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and that, that particular information came out of a uh, research think tank in higher education, um, Hanover Group, and they do some awesome work. And those are all of the kinds of things that they identify through their research as far as enhancing the retention of students in a program. Yeah, that's great. 
I want to say one other thing that we haven't talked about yet. The uh, total of a 410 programs, which was 64% reported having greater than 90% of graduates placed in an EMS agency, which means that 36% of programs had less than 90% of their graduates that went on to work on an ambulance. You know, they're going other places. Or in a hospital, I guess, right? Or, 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 or it, yeah, because yeah, the, the placement means yeah. anywhere they're using their skills. So when you look at it from a workforce perspective, you're yeah. not just looking at attrition, who didn't pass the exam, but the question is, where are they going? They may right. pass the program, but they may go work somewhere else in a related yeah. field, or they may just decide it's not for me. You know? Yeah, and, and that's a fair point, Kim. We, we yeah. do know, um, anecdotally, if you talk to program directors, that are here at the conference and, and elsewhere, we're hearing this even from, from some specific states. There are a number of people that are going into a paramedic program now that are actually leaving the paramedic program without the intent of ever getting mm -hmm. on an ambulance and providing that type of clinical yeah. care. That is not the practice area that they are choosing to work <laughs> in. Where are they going? We can't quantify this just yet, but there are a number of paramedic program graduates mm -hmm. that are becoming certified or licensed that are going to work in clinics and oh, hospitals absolutely. in other types of roles where they are functioning as paramedics using their full scope of practice, knowledge, skills, and abilities in those areas. And they're being recruited to those jobs, oftentimes making more money, better benefits, better benefits. and a work-life balance yeah. that yeah. The, the younger generation in particular is striving to attain. Right. There are all these pieces that are contributing to this workforce Absolutely. You know, and yeah. just, you know, that was brought up this morning. Great. Mm -hmm. brought up yes. Some of those things yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. Thanks very much for sharing on 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 this one. We're going to take a minute now and we're going to uh, we have a uh, little bit of time left. We're going to go global a little bit and look at an article. And, uh, you know, Mike and I were at the KHEP uh, conference. I was there virtually. You were there in person and we were. Uh, texting back and forth about a speaker that was talking about uh, the global look at, at accreditation and medical education, health professions education. And it was this just mind opening uh, talk. So uh, it made me look at the literature a little bit. And we started looking and, and Mike found this one, uh, the role of accreditation in 21st century health professions education, the report of an international consensus group. So we're, we're switching gears a little bit, but it's related because uh, one of the things about the last article we looked at was it, we're getting this incredible data out of having a single system of national accreditation and certification and data we would not have without that. So, uh, and and we know that the, even, even from the states, every state is doing something different. Some aren't even collecting data, some are collecting lots of data and you're getting you know one state versus another. So uh, getting this single national data set was great. But uh, we know also that on a, or maybe you don't know this, but I didn't know it until you know hearing this person speak, that on a global level, health professions education accreditation has been experiencing some, you know, questions, you know, what is the purpose of this? Is everyone doing the same thing? Are we all measuring outcomes of students? Are, are students getting, you know, there, there's a real spotlight on accreditation. And that was mentioned actually in our last, um, our last talk uh, that our own federal government has a spotlight on accreditation, uh, more so on the on the ensuring that we have a system of accreditation. Uh, in this case, this article was written about, and this is in 2020, um, about you know there's been attention on accreditation reform. Why why so much uh, you know attention? 
And they go on to describe some of the things that have uh, gone on, you know, in different health professions, accreditation so, uh, systems, um, you know, recognizing that they provide oversight and guidance on health professions training programs, but that there's some, uh, you know, kind of incongruity about what, what the purpose and the goals are of each organization. I actually appreciated that they described, um, and actually, let me just show this uh, table for anyone who could see it. Um, there's a table that shows that th there were, they formed out of these questions an international group. So this is an uh, international, I uh, can't remember what it's called, the I, I always want to say IHOP, um, International Health Professions <laughs> Accreditation Outcomes Consortium. Pancakes. So, yeah, pancakes. And uh, we're talking about, you know, uh, 10 in 2013, there were um, 10 countries. In 2018, there were 15 countries involved, including the U.S. Um, and many, many, you know, 41 different councils for medical education and different types of uh, health professions education accrediting programs. And discussing discussing issues like what what's your definition of accreditation? What's your goal of accreditation? And it looked like they found they have different quotes in here. Some had a program focus, you know, that the purpose is you know certification of suitably, you know, of uh, qualified medical education programs. Others had a student and graduate focus, sort of an outcomes focus. While still others had sort of a workforce focus. We want to prepare people for the workforce. We want to protect patients at the end of the line. So I thought that was very interesting. And so they came up with this can these two statements, uh, these, these these kind of general overarching statements about the definition and the goal of accreditation. Um, the definition being accreditation in the health professions is the process of formal evaluation of an education program, institution, or system against defined standards by an external body for the purpose of quality assurance and continuous enhancement. And they had this kind of back and forth discussion of that. Um, and the goal being to contribute to ensuring high quality training for a competent workforce prepared to serve societal needs effectively. I think it was so important for them to separate out what is the goal versus what is your definition of what you do. So um, I, I just thought that was great because then you recognize you can kind of backwards map, right? You can backwards map your whole process. So in this, they actually also uh, recognize that, you know, accreditation program evaluation, medical education research can sometimes have, they can be overlapping endeavors. So you have, um, you know, accreditation, the mandate, the purpose, the funding source is different for each of those things, but they can have overlapping purposes. And we just saw that in the previous article. And then this whole, they have a great table on the QA versus QI kind of discussion. Um, you know, are we promoting excellence and innovation what, what what are you what's the program doing to improve it's very kind of formative and developmental versus you know summative what's below the standard how can we make sure we're achieving minimum standards which is very QA oriented mm -hmm. so i thought that was a really yeah. interesting one that's sort of the same kind of struggles we have i th i so, thought about like when you know that long term planning versus like did you meet the standard and then when you do long term planning in your program that should be the QI piece of yeah. it, where you're constantly doing that cycle where you're, you know, planning and then you implement something and did it make the program better? And so that's one of the things that we look for when we go out as a site visitor. Yes, absolutely. And the whole purpose of it is for the, to have that continuous improvement cycle in your program, which I love the way they separated it out too. I think yeah, it's great. Because, and they also recognize that it's, it's both. 
It's really mm-hmm. both. You have to have, we, we want to set minimum standards, but we want to yep. see that part of those standards is that a program is using data from their industry, from the community of interest and from the people they serve to feed back into the program and to improve the program mm-hmm. and just a process of quality improvement. And then the tools uh, like the resource assessment matrix, the advisory committee, those tools are designed to actually demonstrate that. So um, I, I'm sure that resonated with you, uh, Mike. It, it really did. The other thing um, that you just put up here on the screen too, Megan, you know, we talk about the chain of survival all the time from an EMS perspective and to see somebody now, now Jason Franks is, is a physician, but when you think that this group that was impaneled to look at accreditation on an international level of health professions, education programming, for them to come up and develop a model that puts kind of the overall process of accreditation into a chain type of system mm-hmm. was pretty powerful to actually <laughs> see that. So it is. And I really recommend you guys pull this and, and if anything, look at the chain at the end. Um, there's a, it's a, you know, kind of colorful graphic, um, that, that I've got on online, the black and white version doesn't look as good, but, but it reminds you of the chain of survival, right? We can understand that. And it, at the very end are health outcomes. And then it's practice go moving backwards, graduate competencies, cur- curriculum and assessment, learning environment, admissions and selection, and pre-admissions uh, education. Each one of those links, and I love this. I absolutely love it. Each one is an area of research, right? It's it's just a great way of mapping things out. And to include things like health outcomes, um, like learning environment, um, I thought was just fantastic. So n- just not to make it so, you know, curriculum focused and content focused and practice focused, but to link it to the actual health outcomes, not just, you know, patient outcomes, but overall health, even community health outcomes. Yeah, it takes it completely through the, the process, right? We we oftentimes end up stopping because of access to information from an accreditation perspective with paramedic programs after the student graduates in just a very small segment of that afterwards, we have a really, really hard time getting to the health outcomes component of it because it's difficult to follow that and track that and and tie that back to what we do from an accreditation perspective. Yeah, really. I mean, I I would, the quality chain of the health professions is what this, how accreditation connects to the links in the quality chain of the health professions. So uh, I just thought this this was uh, terrific. So this is a really uh, important, I think, paper to kind of look at. It gives you a more uh, a larger perspective about because we're all connected. We heard the, also this morning about interprofessional uh, education, interprofessional practice to improve patient outcomes and to improve, you know, equitable patient outcomes. That's that. And this this case they make for a holistic accreditation system, I think is uh, is a, a, a great case that they make for it. I think the question they left open was what aspects of the accreditation process are going to contribute the most to mm-hmm. that, that highest level, which is patient outcomes. Mm-hmm. And certainly we, you know, there's no way to collect that right now, but yep. I bet there will be in the future. And yeah. that would be so cool to say what really matters. Um, yeah, I think that would be amazing. And I wonder, Kim, if maybe they, their assumption, because they, they don't really address it, maybe they view each of those components as being essential. 
when they put it in that chain, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. That's right. And so they may have been trying to tell the story that each of these is essential and you're not going to have a successful educational endeavor in health professions education without each of them. It's like when you're baking a cake, if you leave out one ingredient. It could be a very small amount, right? You bet. Great. Well, I think that we are at the a good time to give you guys back your Friday. And thank you for coming to this. We really appreciate it and for bringing your lunch. I hope your lunch was good and you enjoy the rest of the conference. And uh, uh, thank you, anybody who's joined us online. And uh, we will see you again. The PCRF Education Research Journal Club is Friday, June 23rd, 10 a.m. Pacific Noon Central. Uh, the next Clinical Journal Club, though, with Dr. Remley Coro, Dr. Tony Fernandez, is Monday, June 12th at 10 a.m. Pacific, noon Central. You can join us live each month. Uh, you can register at prehospitalcare.org, or you can go visit our archive on YouTube. Um, you can look us up, youtube.com slash at PCRF at UCLA. And uh, we're going to get back to the conference. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Thanks.